You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Hedge fund manager Ray Dalio joined the Washington Post Live to discuss the coronavirus pandemic and the U.S. economy. Let's listen. Welcome to the second half of our economic doubleheader. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post, and it's my pleasure in this segment of The Path Forward to have a chance to speak with Ray Dalio. He is the founder and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world with about $150 billion under management. It's one of the most knowledgeable and successful people in our global economy. We're gonna talk today, uh, unlike uh, Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Advisor, not, not about the short term, but about the longer term issues and some fascinating ideas that Ray Dalio has, has developed, which I'll mention in a minute. But Ray, I want to just begin by asking you to comment on what we just heard from Mr. Kudlow. Uh, he's uh, very much uh, in the economic driver's seat in the White House trying to think about these issues. And he talked about an economy that by the second half of the year will be coming back strongly. He also talked about the extraordinary commitment, $5 trillion in lending authority from the Fed and $3 trillion in fiscal spending approved by by Congress. That's a lot of money by his estimate, 40% of the GDP. Start us off before we get to the longer term issues by just uh, giving us a sense of, of how you react to, to what you hear from Larry Kudlow in the White House. Well, I think he uh, started off by explaining that he, he really didn't know very much about uh, whether there's going to how the virus will transfer transpire. I think that was very realistic. Um, so there was a he acknowledged that there was a wide range of possibilities and that's the case. And then he as he said, there could be a V and there could be a W and who knows. Um, and then he, you know, they have to pick one. And so there's a congressional budget office. But I think the uncertainty around that is clear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Regarding um, the creation of the money and credit that's been produced, um, I, uh, I think it's important to realize that for every individual, every company, and every government, there's a certain amount of revenue and income, and they have a certain amount of savings. And this economy, this downturn, produced a hole in income and a hole in balance sheets. And if that those holes were not filled in, the economic consequences of that would be devastating. And so there, we estimate that there'd be four to $5 trillion, roughly speaking, in losses that come in the United States indirectly or directly, and that the amount of filling those in quickly um, has made a big difference. However, it brings into question what the value of money and credit is. Um, So there's been a lot of money and credit produced, and that will have implications longer term. So when we look beyond the immediate, and we hear the sort of questions that um, have been asked about um, dealing with tax cut changes and so on. I think we're going to come into an era in which um, the value of money 
You know, there are limits to the capacity to print money and maintain the value of money. And there are going to be questions that are capitalist versus socialist type of questions in terms of how the bill is divided and how the um, uh, what the world looks like in the future. Those things will take place uh, in the future. So I think his assessment was right, but I don't think we're yet talking about the big things that we need to talk about. We're going to uh, turn to those big things. I just want to take one more minute to ask a, a more immediate uh, question. I've heard people uh, wonder whether what we're living through now, both the pandemic and the enormous economic dislocation of the shutdown of the world economy should be should be likened to a tornado which sweeps through and does enormous damage but then is gone uh, and you and you rebuild or an earthquake which leaves behind rubble that can take uh, years and years to rebuild so I, I just would put that to you uh, Mr. Dalio, is do, when you think of the, about this, do, do either of those fit better, the, the tornado or the earthquake analogy? Um, first of all, I think that uh, in both of those cases, they're apt. And whether we call it one or the other, there's a great deal of economic damage which will remain and will require a lot of repairing after this. I think what you mean is uh, whether there are structural fissures, fissures and whether those will be deep. And um, I believe they are. And that's why I think um, that there are uh, three big factors that exist today that did not exist since the 30s that are those things that crea create those fissures. Um, I think those three big things that the setting that is the setting that this downturn has happened in is first, we have a debt monetary situation that did not exist since the war years. In other words, when interest rates hit zero and you have a lot of debt and you have to print a lot of money, that changes the game. It means that it's not easy to stimulate an economy by monetary policy in the usual way. And you have to deal with the debts and you're in a debt monetization mode. So that's one factor that you have to go back to the 30s. The second big factor that's the lay of the land that we will remain with. between socialism and capitalism and Republicans and Democrats and so on. And that wealth gap issue, when you have an economic downturn at the same time, is particularly difficult. And the third factor that didn't exist before, but existed in the 1930s, which is a concern, is the rise of um, a power to challenge the existing world power, the rise of China, to challenge the United States, um, in which case there's a lot to argue or fight about, and that's the backdrop. So a downturn would have come from one reason or another, they always come, 
And those structural issues are the big important issues. And uh, the 1930s gives a, um, a good case if we look at those. And if we look at the sizes of the debt and the printing and so on, that's also, as uh, Larry Kudlow said, comparable to the war years. So I think that the big that will drive the nature of what's to come. So, Ray, let, let's unpack uh, those uh, big ideas. I want to urge viewers who are interested in in this systematic, deep analysis to look uh, online for the, uh, the detailed account that Ray Dalio has put together called The Changing World Order. You can find it either on LinkedIn or you can go to principles.com and, and find this argument systematically. But maybe we could unpack this one by one uh, in your analogies to the to the 1930s and the terrible problems then and then the consequential subs subsequent problems, starting with, with the, the, the debt problem. You've written that we're late in a cycle of indebtedness that was uh, dangerous in itself. Talk a little bit more about what happened in the 30s and why the situation now in your mind, simply on this question of of, of, of debt and monetary policy is similar and what we should do about it. Well, uh, under a normal set of circumstances, um, debt is spending power and central banks can pretty much push a button, it turns down and you hit it with a dose of stimulation and it inflates and you have the economy turning up. And that happens in an early part of a debt cycle. And then you get over indebted and it's not so easy. So um, uh, when from 1929 to 1932, there was um, a debt crisis because we had a lot of debt and they had to ease monetary policy as a result of a debt bubble in the 20s. And then you hit zero interest rates. And when you had hit zero, you can't lose, use those monetary policies anymore. So then there is the printing of money and buying of financial assets. So that same thing happened in 2008 and nine. We had a debt crisis. We hit zero interest rates all around the world, pretty much. And the, that first monetary policy of interest rate cuts doesn't work anymore. So they go to the second, which they did in 1933. And we did in 2008 and we did it again now. And that is the printing of money and buying financial assets. The first attempt at that was the turn up um, in 2008 and nine, and they bought bonds and uh, that passed through the system. And what it does is it tends to increase the wealth gap because those who own financial assets benefit more than those who don't. And so financial asset prices go up and so on, but there's then another downturn. And in this particular downturn, like the ones in the 1930s, um, it was not good enough to be able to buy bonds and traditional assets. They needed to get money in the hands of businesses and, um, and individuals and so on, which could not any longer be done by the Federal Reserve buying bonds or other central banks buying bonds. So there had to be a coordination between the Federal Reserve and the federal government 
Uh, central governments can't print money, but they can determine, they can borrow money, and they can determine, and they can tax, and they can determine where that money goes. Central banks can't determine where it goes, but they can create money. And so we're in a new era. This new era is not the same type of as, uh, capital allocation as existed before. You know, before a central bank would put money on deposit and then bankers would come along and they would say, oh, who can I safely lend to and make a spread? And that's how the capitalist system worked. We're now having uh, the allocation of money and credit take place through the central government and not that allocation process. So that's, again, very much like the 1930s. So those are uh, disturbing uh, historical analogies, and it gets worse in your assessment and in your Changing World Order paper. You note that the 1930s saw this wealth and opportunity gap increase in the United States and around the world uh, so that people uh, began to embrace some more extreme ideas, uh, communism, socialism, uh, and the conservative equivalent in Germany and, and Italy. And you've written that you see similar uh, gaps and consequent populist movements today. Talk about uh, what your own assessment is of where we're heading in the kind of political economics of this crisis, uh, thinking about what happened uh, so many years ago. Well, when, when you have a lot of debt and you have a wide wealth gap and you have an economic downturn, um, that's a toxic combination because it's a lot to fight over. And so throughout history, not just in the 30s, but even throughout history, that mix has caused a lot of confrontation. Um, and so I think it's apparent that we're there. The, the, the elections will be that. I think it's, it's apparent that we're going to have all around the world, we're having um, these fights of ideology, or, uh, you know, and, and what are they fights over? It's always, how do you divide the wealth and how do you, you know, it's a fight over wealth and power. And so I think we're in an environment where you have this downturn, you have the larger debts, and you have <clears throat> this um, ineffective monetary policy that's a, that's a dangerous uh, set of circumstances. So after, as far as looking ahead, I think that after this passes, there will be lots of negotiations or arguing about how to divide the pie or how to increase the pie. So when you hear, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, Mr. Kudlow um, give the example of a capital gains tax reduction, uh, that would be favored more by those who are more conservative and, and capitalist, and then you'll hear, hear another plan in another format. I think the big issue domestically and internationally, is can we do this together without fighting and doing ourselves more harm than good from fighting? You know, I would love to see a bipartisan, you know, thoughtful disagreement negotiation, which did take place in providing the initial uh, supports, financial supports, 
if we can handle these challenges well among ourselves and make our country greater to do the right things to make it more efficient, we can increase the size of the, the pie and divide it well. But there are real issues here in terms of the wealth, and, and I call it the opportunity gap. Um, I'm involved, my wife and I are involved in Connecticut and kids' education. And you see, for example, the digital divide. There was no ability of poor kids to have computers to learn with, and the state won't fund it. And so, and, and, and there's not connectivity. Today, to not have connectivity is the equivalent of not having electricity 50 years ago. So such things are counterproductive and not fair. You know, the top, I um, did the analysis of, of deciles of people. The top 40% compared to the bottom 60%. Top 40% on. People, but it's a not. You want to educate your children in the best possible way. So these types of issues exist, and how we approach them, whether it's together in a thoughtful empathetic way, realizing that the conflict would be too bad is going to be the most important issue, I think. So I think it'll interest our viewers that Ray Dalio, who founded, as I said at the outset, the largest hedge fund in the world, long before the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown of the economy, was arguing that something fundamental needed to be changed to avoid the consequences of the growing inequality uh, in our society and the political dysfunction that was part of it. Uh, and, and maybe, uh, Ray, you just speak a little bit about that. You wrote a paper last year. Uh, I wrote about it in, in a column. And the title, as I remember it, was How and Why Capitalism Needs to be Reformed. Uh, and in other words, the fundamentals of the fairness of this uh, distribution of the pie were bothering you a lot a year ago. Um, you know, everything needs to be reformed. Everything needs to be getting better. And I think the question is, are the outcomes what you want the outcomes to be? And if, they're, if you're getting the outcomes, but the question is, what is the American dream? And when I grew up, I was lucky enough to, you know, I have two parents who cared about me. I went to a public school. Um, and I came out with equal opportunity. And so um, there are things in which we would say, what is the American dream? I don't know if we could agree on it, but I would say it's something like equal opportunity. And are we producing equal opportunity? And by what metrics would we say we're producing equal opportunity? I don't think we are. I'm, I know we're not, I'm, I'm, I deal with it every day. And so that um, problem, when looked at a historical context, is, is, is not only um, an issue of fairness in terms of achieving your goal, but it's also an issue of um, the existence of the system. There are a lot of people today that will, will criticize capitalism as and throw out capitalism and go to something that could be a lot less productive. 
And so to understand that there are certain, the profit-making system can do a lot. It's the, still the best asset allocation system, best resource allocation system that there is, but it still does not fully achieve the goals that one might have in terms of equal opportunity. For example, if, you, if, if businesses want to make profits and let's say uh, people who have a lot of money can pay more for their kids' education, then the profitable thing to do is to appeal to them and they will have better education for their children. And if states who are, or school districts that are funded rely on the local tax basis, then they won't have that. That's just a particular of the system. So I believe there's the possibility to, if it's smart and bipartisan, to design it so the pie increases, that productivity increases, as well as divided well, because at the end of the day, giving money away is not going to raise productivity and increase the pie. So you have to increase the size of the pie and divide it well, and that has to be done in a smart and bipartisan way. It, it does seem clear as we as we look at the extent of dislocation now and think about the future that a different economy uh, in some respects is going to emerge after we get through this period of pandemic uh, and lockdown. And, and one of the factors that we'll think about most is the third in your fundamental analysis and that is the rise of, of a new competitor, the likes of which we really have never encountered in, in my judgment. And that's a China that will soon be not just as, as rich as we are, but uh, as technologically sophisticated. Uh, during the years of Soviet uh, threat to the United States, nobody ever imagined that they'd win the contest of ideas or that they really were a, a pure competitor in terms of science, technology, uh, that range of, of issues. China is different. And perhaps you could just walk us through, Ray, your assessment of what uh, this growing China will mean for a global economy that's been interdependent, but with American leadership. Well, again, you know, history provides a good uh, guideline, but um, I started to uh, go to China in 1984, mostly because I was curious and I've gone through, um, through it over the years. And um, there's no doubt that their system um, is impressive. Imp I mean, has produced fabulous results in that, if you look at economic statistics, um, it went from 2% two, uh, 2 to 22% uh, the per capita increment. Excuse me, let me say that again per capita income increased by 22 times. The poverty rate uh, went from 88% to less than 1%. The, um, the development of technologies, the competition in terms of all of these things has been quite something. And so um, it is a viable competitor and it is going global um, and it has a lot of money is about $3 trillion in reserves. And so if you look at the amount of trade in the world, um, China's bigger in, in world trade. If you look at the amount of money that they're investing around the world, it, it, 
big, very big, bigger than the United States is in the sense. So what you have is China uh, growing, being successful and going international. And naturally that produces a lot of economic competition and maybe beyond economic. So there are four kinds of wars or conflicts that exist with China. Uh, first is a trade war. There's um, then a technology war. Um, there's a geopolitical war. You will see more about that in Hong Kong and Taiwan and issues in terms of that expansion. And there could be a capital war. There are signs of a capital war as, uh, for example, the president um, prohibits um, or discourages others from investing abroad and has the unilateral power to basically say that we won't pay um, China's debts, which are uh, China's holding something like a trillion dollars of our bonds. So there are a lot of issues to fight about. And just like domestically, the question is what, how bad that fight will be or whether there are ways to be tough negotiators with each other and not get into a fight. So I want to again encourage viewers who want to think about this more more carefully uh, while we still have a little time uh, before heading back to work, uh, most of us, to uh, go online and, and look at, at Ray Dalio's uh, thoughts on the changing world order, as, as he puts it. Ray, I want to take the, the few remaining minutes we, we have to talk a little more informally uh, for our viewers, this is a rare chance to see someone who uh, started such an extraordinary uh, business as Bridgewater. Uh, and our, our viewers, like people everywhere, are kind of wondering what's ahead, wondering what to do with their money, wondering uh, where the financial markets are going. We've talked about this in big overarching terms. But maybe you could just uh, speak a little more practically to people who uh, don't get a chance to listen to the head of Bridgewater Associates very often. Well, I'd, I'd say the two most important things are, uh, first of all, to have um, a large enough savings, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and then to have it extremely well diversified. Okay, so large savings. You know, I think everybody should calculate if they didn't have an income, how much their expenses are, and and then they look to their savings, and they say that will last a certain amount of time, all things being equal. And the, the big differentiation, even today in the world between countries, is those who have enough savings to ab absorb the shocks that might come. So that's important. But what you save in is very important. And I think if we look back on the history, uh, we may exclude the implications of the value of the dollar. So we, we pay attention to stocks and bonds and private equity or whatever, real estate. And those are things that um, do well in a normal economy. But you have to think, how do you go out uh, globally and diversify globally and diversify into some other asset classes just a bit, you know, a little bit of gold, a little bit of inflation index bonds, a little bit of 
um, uh, you know, European or other investments in maybe even in China. I believe that investing in China is a good diversification strategy in this competitive kind of environment. So I would say um, savings and a plan, a plan that means the stock market is a bet on growth that doesn't have rising interest rates in it. If we get more growth than ex expected and we don't have rising interest rates, stocks will go down and if the go up and if the opposite is true, then they'll go down. So to think about those things, diversification and having enough would be my recommendations. So folks, you heard it from the master, uh, Ray Dalio, the, the founder of Bridgewater Associates. Uh, it's been my pleasure to have this chance to talk uh, with Ray about the economic crisis we're experiencing and the path forward, but in a very broad uh, context. And, and Ray, I thank you for thinking carefully and, and systematically uh, with us. So I, I want to tell viewers that we'll be back at Washington Post Live next week with a full, full slate of events. On Friday of next week, I'll be talking to Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, and Gordon Brown, the former British Prime Minister. Uh, next week, we'll also be talking on Wednesday to the CEO of Land Lakes, Beth Ford, uh, and on Thursday to the CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes. So we hope everybody will be thinking about the economy, thinking about getting back to work as soon as possible. Again, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for our discussions with Larry Kudlow and Ray Dalio. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.